0: Thanks for tuning in, now let's get to this week's episode. On the north shore of Lake Tahoe in Nevada, this incline village where the summer sun dances on the water while hikers gaze down from Monkey Rock. Paul Gruber grew up in Wisconsin and went on to earn a master's degree in French and wound up in Lake Tahoe teaching at Incline High School. Paul loved teaching foreign languages. It gave him the ability to travel the world. He had visited almost every continent and shared the memories of his travels with his students. Paul traveled often, but no matter where he went, he kept in touch with his family. In his early 50s, Paul inherited money, which led to his retirement in 1989. He moved to Sandpoint, Idaho, It was similar in size, and his home on the shores of Muskrat Lake reminded him of Lake Tahoe. Paul met 43-year-old Daryl Cuell, a local handyman who was down on his luck, living with friends and supporting his wife and six children. Over time, Paul came to trust Daryl, and Daryl admired the things Paul had accumulated. His house, his boat, and ability to travel whenever he wanted. Court records reported that in December 1993, Paul spent Christmas with his daughter Shelly and her family in Reno, Nevada. On January 5th, he returned home. But what Paul didn't know is that Daryl had grown envious of him and his wealth, and in his greed, had come up with a plan. A plan for murder. Daryl had a 22 caliber handgun and fashioned a homemade silencer for it. At some point after Paul returned home, Daryl stopped by. Paul greeted him, and as he turned, Daryl brought his gun, and silencer out of hiding, raised it quickly, and fired four shots. Paul dropped to the floor instantly. Dead. Dead. A fifty-two. Dale dragged Paul's blood-soaked body down the hall. He rolled him into a plastic waterbed mattress and heaped his body into the crawl space beneath his house. Using a shovel, he dug into the cold, hard earth. Shovel after shovel, he dug Paul's grave. Dropped his body into it and covered it with dirt. Back upstairs, Daryl cleaned the blood off the walls and hardwood floors and replaced the carpet. On a section of the hardwood floor, one of the bullets had glanced off it and he knew he needed to hide it. Once a floor was scrubbed, he took it a throw rug, spread glue on the back, and fastened it to the floor there, the bullet mark was gone. Daryl planned to pose as Paul to make it appear he was still alive. That would give him time to dispose of Paul's belongings. He scoured the house, found his bank card and pin number, bank statements and documents. He practiced Paul's handwriting for hours. Meanwhile Paul's daughter Shelley had called him numerous times, and after a few weeks of not hearing from him, became concerned. To keep up the charade, Daryl paid Paul's bills, including his mortgage, and picked up his mail at the local post office. He removed the furniture, Paul's clothes, and even his hairbrush and toothbrush. He took some of the items to his home, including Paul's fiberglass speedboat. Impersonating Paul, he made sure not to miss his grandson's third birthday and mailed a card. When Shelley received it, she sensed something wasn't right. The handwriting seemed off. To the point that she took out old cards and compared them. Her husband also took a look and agreed with her. The birthday card was not written by Paul. A few more weeks passed and Shelley had still not heard from her father. On February 28th, she contacted the Bonner County Sheriff's Office, filed a missing persons report, and asked them to do a welfare check. They visited Paul's house, and while there were no signs of a break-in, they could see the house was empty. During their investigation, they learned that Daryl had been working for Paul and questioned him. Daryl claimed the last time he'd seen Paul was February 18th. They reported their findings back to Shelley. She knew something was definitely wrong. Her father would have never sold off his belongings and left his lake house without telling family members. Suspicious, she laid a trap. Shelley left a message on her father's answering machine, reminding him not to forget her husband's birthday and asked him to send the money that they'd discussed. Now it wasn't her husband's birthday, and they'd never discussed any money. Daryl listened to the message and mailed a birthday card to Shelly's husband, along with a $25 check. Again, Shelly compared the writing. She knew for sure now that something had happened to her father. The Idaho State Police had their forensic examiner look at the birthday cards and check. And in their opinion, stated it was Paul's handwriting. Shelly disagreed. She called the local post office and asked who was picking up her father's mail. Security cameras provided video, but it wasn't clear. However, it showed the silhouette of a man. Someone with a distinct and sharply pointed nose. Investigators compared it to Daryl and determined it was a match. Investigators questioned Daryl and he admitted picking up Paul's mail, but claimed Paul had asked him to before leaving for a trip to Canada. Then they showed Daryl a photo of Paul and here's where it took an interesting twist. Daryl claimed the man in the photo was not the Paul he knew and declared he must have been working for an imposter. Police had a sketch artist work with Daryl. Using computer software, they inputted Daryl's description. In the end, the outcome oddly resembled the police sketch artist. And once released to the media, not one lead came in. Meanwhile, Shelly circulated flyers in the search for her father. Forensic Files episode, If I Were You, described how detectives looking into Paul's finances discovered that someone was paying his bills and that there were a number of large withdrawals totaling over $20,000. Shelly advised them that her father didn't use his ATM card to make large withdrawals. So they looked into Daryl's past. He had no criminal history. Then they looked into his bank accounts and discovered matching deposits were made around the same time. Detectives visited the banks where the ATM withdrawals were made, but discovered those branches did not have a camera. They presented the evidence to Daryl, but he explained it away saying that he transferred the money to pay Paul's bills. Investigators sent the birthday cards and check to another forensic document examiner for a second opinion. Although with dedication and practice, a person can train themselves to duplicate a signature, it's extremely hard to write a few sentences and maintain that style of writing. After careful comparison, Robert Floberg determined... They were not written by Paul. Meanwhile, at some point, Daryl moved back to Gig Harbor in Washington. Investigators searched Paul's house again and rotting cadaver dogs, but they did not detect a scent. Investigators kept a watch on Paul's house. One of the detectives had noticed the throw carpet had been glued to the hardwood floor and had always bothered him. He wondered... Who would do that? Investigators tore up that piece of carpet and discovered a small gouge in the hardwood. To them, it looked like a bullet had bounced off the floor. They sent the wood for testing, and it came back positive for lead. With this evidence, they sprayed luminol around the area. It lit up the floor and walls. Police obtained a blood sample from Daryl and searched his property and home. They found Paul's pickup truck, his ski boat, some of his power tools and furniture, and dozens of items from his home, including his television and cell phone. Upstairs, behind a hidden door, they found throwing stars and a large sword called a katana that had belonged to Paul. Paul. Then they found a small suitcase. Inside were dress clothes, a large butcher knife, a twenty-two caliber handgun, a handmade silencer, and in the middle of it all was one of Paul's electricity bills. Paul had been missing for 18 months. On October 23, 1995, police returned to his home. This time... In the crawl space, they noticed a spot where the dirt had settled, leaving a depression. Over the next two days, they sectioned off the area into quadrants and began digging. Slowly and carefully, they used shovels and five gallon buckets to remove the dirt. They dug down over three feet. When peeking up at them out of the dirt was a piece of plastic. They dug further, discovering Paul. The medical examiner removed four 22 caliber bullets from his body. A month later, investigators had the landfill searched for evidence connected to Paul's murder. Using backhoes, workers dug through debris the size of a football fields sifting through the trash. It was reported they found a briefcase and a video camera, but no further details were provided. In January 1996, police put together a photographic lineup and showed it to one of Paul's friends to see if he could identify anyone. He picked out Daryl. The stamps on the envelopes that contained the birthday cards were sent for DNA testing. They came back a match to Daryl, with a million-to-one odds. In 1994, there were one million people in Idaho, which meant that out of all its residents in the entire state, only Daryl's DNA was a match. The bullets retrieved from Paul's body were tested, but could not be matched to Daryl's gun. Often, when a silencer is used, the marks on each bullet fired can be different and impossible to match. But prosecutors felt they had enough evidence. On May 20, 1996, Darrell was arrested at his home in Gig Harbor and charged with first-degree murder and five counts of forgery. Darrell was extradited to Idaho. While in custody, he confided to his cellmate a detail of the murder that only the killer would know. The color of the waterbed mattress that Paul had been buried in. Then he shared that he had a plan to kill three of the detectives working in the case when they would be transporting him so that he could escape. His cellmate read it on Daryl. And when Daryl was unable to come up with the $15,000 in cash, he came up with another plan. The Spokesman Review reported that he paid an inmate to find Tim a transient, someone to fake a confession and take the fall for him. From behind bars, he set up a meeting between his wife and this man. She was to give him $1,000 cash and titles to two vehicles. But undercover officers showed up at the meeting and confiscated the cash and titles to the cars. Later, when the two detectives he tried to put a hit on were transporting him, they had the pleasure of telling Darrell that they knew about his plan and let him know the witness had turned state's evidence. Darrell's face went pale. In April 1997, almost three and a half years after Paul's murder, Darrell went on trial. Before a jury of seven women and five men, the prosecutor stated, Do you want to know who the fake Paul Gruber is? It's the person whose DNA is on the stamps, whose handwriting is on those checks. Pointing right at Darrell, he declared, This is the fake Paul Gruber, and the real murderer in this case. Daryl shouted back, That's a lie! Startling the courtroom. Darrell's lawyer suggested, that his client did not kill Paul. Rather, he was attacked by a burglar and that police focused on Daryl and ignored other leads and that someone posing as Paul had hired Daryl. The prosecution disagreed, saying that the murder was intentional and not an accident because accidents don't get shot four times and bury themselves. The trial lasted three weeks After a day and a half deliberating, the jury found Darrell guilty on all counts. He was sentenced to 25 years to life. Darrell appealed his conviction twice. They were both denied. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of the Puente Hills Mall Murders. Eugene woke up to a shotgun banging on his car and John and Vincent yelling at him to open the door. They ordered him over to the edge of the cliff. Eugene glanced down and dove over the edge just as he heard a clicking sound. If you are dying to hear more, Past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music, Sound Effects and Fastlane Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.